Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today's guest is um, a, pretty much a windfall for me. I just uh, finished attending the Frankfurt Book Fair in Germany and on the way back to the United States stopped in London for some publishing meetings and I ran into Gray Levitt who's uh, very famous as a, as a Nikon if I'm here in London but I'm from Los Angeles so it's Nikon. Uh, shop and it's um, he's been involved with um, Owen Hubbard's works going back to when the Battlefield Earth first released he's been familiar with um, the evolution of writers of the future and also uh, he's written himself books on his subject of photography so this was a perfect fit so I was very excited to be able to meet him. So welcome, Gray. Well, thank you very much. I'm honored that you've asked me. I guess to begin with, mm. the, uh, just the subject, how you got into photography in the first place and that, that whole subject. Oh, right. Well, um, that's a good question, actually, because um, it was around the period of the explosion, really, of um, Carnaby Street and the whole swinging London uh, vibe where um, suddenly um, you went from, um, say, uh, teenagers who dressed exactly like their parents, and then uh, suddenly this 1965, 1966 and so forth came along, and we had... Uh, people like the Beatles and the Kinks and the Stones and and things like that, and a big explosion of fashion, uh, which all seemed to happen in London. Mm -hmm. And um, I was fiddling around trying to work out what to do with my life, and I was working for a time in um, in a boutique, but I was always more interested in um, being on the other side of the camera rather than facing the camera, mm -hmm. and. Um, I saw a film called Blow Up with David Hemmings. Mm -hmm. um, and he uh, played a very successful um, sort of, I guess, a fashion photographer. And it was made by Antonioni and um, uh, music by the Yardbirds. Yeah. And um, it made a big impression on me. And it was loosely based, I understand, on the character David Bailey, who was one of sort of the, the top five photographers that broke through in the UK at that time. And um, it was, I, that's what I want to do. I want to do photography. I, want to, I love music. I want to go and photograph bands. And um, I used to go to this club on this, I lived on the south coast of, uh, of England and uh, lived in a, seaside resort called Bournemouth and um, I used to go to this little club called the Ritz and a more unritz like place you could <laughs> you could wish to meet and um, so uh, usually there was about um, 20 impoverished students making half a lager last all night and listening to a local blues band um, trying their hardest to interest these uh, these students and I used to enjoy going there, but it occurred to me that it wouldn't work. So I wrote to the, the manager and said, look, I love coming, but, you know, I, I think pretty soon you're going to wash your hands with it. But have you thought of doing changing the name and booking the following acts? And I gave them a list of people I thought. Much to my surprise, they wrote back to me and said, we think this is a great idea. And um, uh, so next week we've got this man called Jethro Tull playing, thinking it was a man rather than a band. And normally I would just walk in easily. Mm -hmm. I get there and they turn something like 400 people away at the door and I only managed to squeeze in and uh, Jethro Tull were, you know, just beginning to break through. And... Um, and he said, he was sort of, wow, Gray, this is amazing. And I said, who have you got next week? They said, uh, Fleetwood Mac. 
<laughs> Peter Green. So, and then it went on, and um, I, I used to go and just take photographs because there was no limitations. Right. There was no like now. It's three photos, no flash, out the door, and um, um, you've got to hand over all your images to see if they'll be approved. And in those days. It wasn't like that at all. Everything was raw, brand Very new. Very raw, yeah. I remember going to see Genesis with Peter Gabriel. There were 13 of us in the audience, and, and at the halfway point, the <laughs> yeah. band and we all went into the bar for a drink. <laughs> it may as well, you know. Yeah. And um, so I thought, well, the way to, a way to maybe pay for this equipment is to work at a camera store and maybe I'll get a discount. So I started working at this uh, little seaside uh, uh, shop, and that gave me uh, really my sort of first inkling of, well, let's maybe maybe something here will work, and maybe I can combine the love of music and the love of photography, and I loved literature too. So that's that's really the kind of the beginning of it all. That's amazing. And then you've... You also, I also have seen on social media posts with you with Nicky Hopkins, yes. who was an amazing uh, studio pianist that played with anybody and everybody that was anybody. Yes, he um, um, he he started out with with a really strange outfit from school. He was sixteen and he was playing with um, Screaming Lord Such and the Savages. Uh, and, and such was a bizarre character, um, but the backing musicians were really tight. And um, they got a bit fed up with um, with such, and um, Nicky got hired to work for a band called Cyril Davis's All-Stars, and he was a very, very serious blues player. Um, and they they um, pretty soon would pack out the marquee every week. And um, the opening act was usually the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> and um, in fact, um, next week in London, there will be a premiere of a film called The Session Man, which is about Nicky's life. Yeah, I'm really anxious to see that, yes. actually. And it is astonishing because he... Um, he went on to become the number one person that you would pull in for a piano track because he was at the uh, Royal Academy of Music. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember Keith Richards saying he was, um, he said, sometimes I would go to him with a half-cooked idea. And he said, and he knew what I was thinking, and he said that he would add something, and he said, we had this he had this telepathy. He said, I remember going to see him once and he was playing Mozart. And he said, what's that, Nicky? He said, oh, it's Mozart, Keith. And he said, and then he played it backwards. <laughs> and uh, he did over a, a, a period, of, he appeared on over 250 albums. And at one point I was working out with him a list. I got to about 600 people he'd recorded with. And I said, I tell you what, let's stop there, Nicky. Let's just make a list of who you haven't worked with. It's going to be a hell of a lot easier. And um, um, did you know him at all? I did not. No. No, I missed out on at the earlier release of Battlefield Earth. He was on the tour. Yeah. But I wasn't involved with it at that time. I didn't get involved with the whole thing with, public, with publications until mm. 1986. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. So that had that already come. He already come and gone with yes. you know, his... Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. And um, uh, I recall a time when we had been on tour with Art Garfunkel and uh, we were at the, um, the London Palladium and backstage it was Art Garfunkel, I think, and James Taylor and a bunch of other people. And Elton John walks in and walks by him, hello, Art, hello, so-and-so, and he grabs hold of Nicky in a bear hug and, um, you know, gives him a big hug. And Nicky says, oh, hello, Reg. And they uh, and Elton explained that they'd both worked in Denmark Street, which was the kind of the Tin Pan Alley of London, and uh, both laying down tracks and trying to get work. And um, 
And Elton put his arm around Nicky and pointed at him and went, Mozart. And, you know, Elton John is no mean player himself. Right. Yeah. So an extraordinary talent, yeah. Yes. Um, mm. So then that, you use that to segue or bridge over then to Battlefield Earth because you were also part of that whole launch Yes, I was. On Battlefield Earth. Mm. Um, So you were working with Author Services, or were you working, was Owen Hubbard directly in touch with you, or how did that work? Um, Well, um, I'd had this idea of, um, at the time, trying to make a list of um, all the fiction that he'd written in all the different genres. Owen Hubbard. Yeah, Owen Hubbard, yeah, and all the different genres. Um, Because I... I think the book that made the, one of the, his early works that made the biggest impression on me was a book called Final Blackout. Absolutely. Uh, which I, to this day, I think it's an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary novel. I was just meeting with a book buyer earlier this morning, and I told him about Final Blackout, and I'm sending it to him because it takes place here in, in yes, London. Yes, that's right. Yeah. You know, so um, yeah. he said, yeah, I'd love to read that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And um, I... Pulp, because this was pre, obviously, internet days, mm-hmm. finding the pulps, which were never meant to last right? because of the paper, the brittle paper. And, of course, if you got a, a nice copy, the costs were not insignificant, particularly for sought-after authors like, right. like Mr. Hubbard and, you know, um, uh, uh, A.E. Vambo and, and people like that. And... Um, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll put it together, and I, and I and I wrote in and said, you know, um, what I was working on, and I was given access to a lot of his private stuff, Mr. Hubbard's private stuff, which was um, which was uh, uh, you know an extraordinary privilege, mm-hmm. really. And um, so what I wanted to do was also find out who illustrated it, because there were some great right. illustrators then, yes. you know, and um, you know about them. And um, um, when I, going back a bit to when I was in my early teens, there used to be this magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland, created by Forrest J. Ackman. Exactly. And um, um, Mr. Ackman's probably very well known to your audience, so uh, certainly of a certain age he would be. And um, he had this... A very large place up in the hills, mm-hmm. Acker Mansion. The Acker Mansion, yes, right. And uh, I, I wrote, I'd written to him from England, and he said, "Well, if you ever come across, give me a call." So when I, I thought, "Well, I'll give him a call," and he said, "Do you fancy coming up?" You know, to the Acker Mansion, and um, he started showing me a lot of his original stuff on, on um, uh, Ron Hubbard, and. Um, he then said, let's go and have some lunch. And we went and had lunch together and I went back and I told him about my project. And he then sent me a list of all these authors to write to and contact to see if they wanted to make a contribution. Um, and so I got some extraordinary stuff back, you know, from people like Ray Bradbury and, um, and, uh, and, and people like that. And um, that was kind of how it started. Mm-hmm. And um, it was in the early 80s, early 80s, yeah, okay. yeah. I'd moved over there and um, was living in Los Feliz, and uh, which fact, is a which is a small suburb of Los Angeles, yes, yeah. And uh, the person who actually got me my apartment was Dan Sherman, really, yeah. <laughs> so we lived next door to one another, okay, yeah. And um, and and uh, Dan Sherman was writing sort of Cold War thrillers. That's why I first encountered him was yeah. I bought a, a in a used bookstore I found this book and I was like, oh, that's it. interesting Dan, yeah. by Dan Sherman so I read it and that's exactly what it was yeah Close. Uh, yeah a, a terrific kind of like a, a a sort of an American John Le Carre or mm-hmm. Graham Greene yeah. certainly of that quality I, his writing was a big influence on me really and um, so. It turned out that uh, Forrest Ackerman had been, um, in the early days at least, um, um, Ron Hubbard's fiction agent. His literary agent, that's correct. Yeah, literary agent, that's right. And so he had a lot of 
He had a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he had a personally inscribed copy of Final Blackout, Hadley uh, Press, first ed first edition, and uh, uh, he had lots of stories to tell, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, how he first met uh, Mr. Hubbard, which was, um, he said there was a, I think it was on the corner, uh, somewhere along Hollywood and Vine, there had been a science fiction bookshop run by this lady. And he was in there one day and browsing the shelves and he, and he heard someone talking to the lady and, and uh, he was uh, talking about a story about the next ice age. And he went over and he got introduced to, to Mr. Hubbard and um, uh, he invited him up to the Los Angeles, I think, is it Laza? Los, Los, Los Angeles Science Fantasy Association. Yes, he, he got invited to one of their meetings. Yeah. Yeah, he was in. A, he actually attended a few of the different meetings there. Yeah, that's right. And they, they put it in their. It's in the records of what they have is like their notoriety is that some of the, the science fiction greats, including Orrin Hubbard, were members of of the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society. That's right. Yeah. 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 Bradbury was was the one that was constantly participating up until his passing several years ago. Yes. Yeah. Oh, terrific. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the great giants of American literature, I would say. For sure. Yeah, yeah and he was, remember chatting with him, he was talking about the uh, his uh, Fahrenheit 451. He said, what was amazing is I wrote that in the basement of, I think it was UCLA Library, mm -hmm. you know, and he had put, he put his dimes in there to be able to, you know, uh, make copies of the stuff, but he was typing it down there. And uh, so he was really proud because the whole thing about burning books that he wrote the book in a library, you know, mm. so for him that was like um, just, you know, perfect, you know, bittersweet justice on the, the whole thing, with, which right now is still, which is an issue again now in the whole thing of, of book banning. But anyway, that's a, that's a different topic yes. and a different interview. Yeah. So, so then I know you were involved with some of the earlier events and attending some of the conventions mm -hmm. with Battlefield Earth's release yeah. and touring with Nicky Hopkins. And how did that go? Because this, you know, I've t I talk about currently, you know, the importance of attending conventions mm. and how to promote yourself. And I do, mm. you know, I address that quite a bit in the podcast. Mm. But going back now, um, 40 plus years, mm. how it was done there, because that was, it was somewhat of, of a burgeoning subject. It was changing. It was transitioning quite a bit. It was, yes. It was in Chicago, mm -hmm. I think, Chicon 4, I yeah. think, um, at the, um, the Marriott, Hyatt Marriott, I think it was. Yeah. I've still got the program somewhere in my collection. And um, I had been working on with a publisher on what was called the Gernsback Awards, which was named after Hugo, Hugo, Hugo right. back and, and now they're called Hugos. Now they're called the Hugos, that's right, yeah. And um, I knew I was going over, and I got approached by author services to say, um, would you help out? I said, yes, of course. And um, um, myself and Jeff Pomerantz, Mm -hmm. who was, um, you know, obviously a very distinguished actor from RADA, who was going to be playing uh, Johnny Goodboy Tyler. That's right. And, um, and, and uh, dressed up, which is, I'd known Jeff slightly before that period. And um, we, we got called up to um, the author services suite in the hotel, and I was asked to, Mr. Hubbard had dedicated a large section of the um, the opening uh, uh, to all the people that he worked with. About 75 or 76 authors that were there on his dedication page. On his 70s, yes. yes. And they would say, if there are any of them that are still alive and here, um, would you go and present it uh, with the personal uh, greetings from uh, L. Ron Hubbard? And I said, yes. And... Um, and so I started, you know, taking them around and presenting them. And uh, and um, I remember going up to one chap and giving it to him, and he he, said, he couldn't believe it. And he was just staggered that that um, uh, Mr. Hubbard remembered him. And um, uh, it, it was great because um, it was, I guess, his... Celebrating his 50th anniversary. 50th anniversary with the news as a writer, professional yeah. writer. Yeah, so I remember going in from O'Hare Airport 
driving in, there was this enormous billboard with it with it on. So, uh, um, you know, it it made a big impact, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a lot of people at that convention, and I don't know if the regular guests in the hotel knew what they're in for, because, as you know from your you know your long history of attending conventions. Um, there's this thing called cosplay mm-hmm. um, uh, where th- some people are extraordinarily creative in the costumes that they make. And um, um, you just had to sit there and kind of work. And I remember going to watch some late-night films that I'd not seen, or certainly not seen on a big screen, like The Day the Earth Stood Still and things like that. And I was w- making my way back to my room, and I past this bar, which was for conventioneers only. And it was like that scene in the Star Wars cantina. <laughs> the cantina scene, yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and um, you know, there was stormtroopers and things, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll go in and have a sit down and have a drink before I go to bed. And, and I sat down and, um, you know, I, apart from the sort of having, you know, quite long hair in those days and an, and an earring, um, I was sitting down and I turned to my right and there was this guy in this terrifying werewolf costume. Uh, but he had leathers and studs and he had red eyes mm-hmm. and he had these fangs and he could drip water from the fangs. And I know I marveled at him and he looked at me and I thought, oh my God. <laughs> Don't, you know, if he if walked into my room, I'd have had a heart attack. <laughs> and, he, and then this voice says to me, who are you supposed to be then? <laughs> A squeaky voice. And I said, sorry? He said, who are you supposed to be? I said, uh, my name's Gray Levitt. And he said, what book are you in then? <laughs> what? Because he said, great costume. <laughs> I said, oh, I'll inform my tailor. <laughs> and um, anyway, they were a very jovial crowd, as mm-hmm. you know. And um, it, was, uh, it, was an, it was enormous. Uh, it, it was enormous fun, really. And that's great. Now, were you involved at all at the inception, or did you do anything at all with the inception of Writers of the Future? I was there. The I think I was in Author Services on the day that I believe it was Fred Harris Mm -hmm. um, when Fred showed me a message from Mr. Hubbard to inaugurate the Writers Writers of of the the Future. future. And so, um, you know... Uh, for me, I was there when history took place because now it's the biggest and mm-hmm. certainly probably the most prestigious in the world, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, and we're celebrating the 40th. And I'll, after this podcast, I will be uh, asking you to do a, a little shout-out to congratulating 40 years of Rise of the Future. But it's, yeah. it's absolutely special that you were there at the actual beginning of Rise of the Future, you know, that you're able to talk about this. Thank you. Yeah, the rise of the future, because it's, like I said, we're 40 years yeah. older now, and did you meet any of the initial judges ever, or did you ever? I did. It's uh, kind of interesting you should say that. When I was, um, I was promoting the, um, uh, what I was then a working title of the Illustrated History of um, L. Ron Hubbard's fiction mm-hmm. work, and so we had this promo piece mocked up. And um, it, because of Battleford Earth, there was a rumour that Mr. Hubbard was going to appear. <laughs> and I went down to meet Algis Boudreaux. Mm-hmm. And he was the original coordinating judge for the contest. Yes, absolutely. And, and a lovely, lovely man. And um, as we were walking in, someone thought that Algis was L. Ron Hubbard. So you can imagine... <laughs> sort of, yeah. yeah. There was a bit of a frisson of excitement in in uh, in the building because um, just had told me that um, um, that um, uh, LRH's um, works were a huge influence on his own work, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and how he was how he was just hanging on to every word, really. Yeah, um, he definitely did that. He was he was a, a wonderful man. I spent quite some time with him. Yes, I'm yeah, sure. With his words of the future, yeah. Because he was very intimately connected with you, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so it's just interesting how that, that first year with maybe it was like 600 entries in the contest that had that first year. And uh, we'll have probably five of those original winners published in volume one will be at the 40th anniversary event. Wow. And one of the judges, um, uh, Dr. Gregory Benford will also be there as, you know, I said, I'm mm-hmm. judge, yeah. but how it's, how it's grown. I mean, this podcast is one of the uh, offshoots of the, of the contest. Mm. Uh, we have a, um, a free online writing workshop that mm. we created that's had over 8,000 people on the course. Mm. Um, and then the, the contest, both contest writers, because it started originally as a writer's the future contest. And the illustrators were hired to illustrate some of the stories. Yes. And then... Then a few years later, the actual sister competition, Illustrates the Future, was was created. Mm-hmm. So we have thousands of entries every quarter now for these for these contests. Mm-hmm. You know, it's grown from like I said, it's I wouldn't call it humble beginnings, but from its simpler beginnings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's never been humble. But no, it's, no, it's, of course, yeah. uh, but it's. Um, it's it's grown and grown and it is now completely its own entity, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. And um, so I think Larry Niven and Jerry Pinnell. Jerry Pinnell. Larry's still uh, with us. He's still a judge. Mm. Jerry Pinnell passed a few years ago, but they were a writing team. Mm, I um, remember. J- yeah. Amazing writing team. And Jerry was just, I mean, all these judges are such amazing people and they're such staunch supporters. And they lend their name wholeheartedly to Elwin Hubbard's contest because of nobody's done that. And routinely they'll say like, you know, I wish I had the wherewithal to do what Elwin Hubbard's done. I totally stand behind him, Mm. you know? So you've got people, you know, there's the original old timers that are, Mm. you know, still with us that were the original judges. But like we had Frank Herbert, the writer of Dune was a judge. When he passed in, um, I got his son, Brian, to become a judge. Mm-hmm. And McCaffrey, just a dear soul, oh, was a judge. Dragon Riders of Penn. Yeah, when she, uh, when she passed in, I got her son, Todd McCaffrey, oh. on as a judge. So it just it continues on. Yeah. 40 years is, is a lot of years, but it's a lot of, of uh, generations of, of writers, fans, that we can actually continue to appeal to with, you know, with introducing new new voices absolutely in fact um, you talking about um, Larry Nevin and Jerry Pornell I've got a story which you know you, you may be interested in I um, I'd got invited to uh, it was called the Pinkard Salon which was up in I think Santa Clara okay by Fari Ackerman and uh, he said Come up, it's you know, so it's, it'll be interesting. In a couple of uh, days, there's uh, all sorts of science fiction and fantasy people there, and um, usually there'll be a theme. And I think it was, I think it was a sort of someone from Harvard uh, who was a paleontologist, and um, you know he got. Um, and there were no holds barred, particularly from Larry Niven and Jerry Ford, <laughs> especially from them. <laughs> And I thought, God, I wouldn't like to be on the receiving end of their questionnaire. And um, and I was, I think it was on the Sunday, and I was sitting down chatting to A.E. Van Vaux, and uh, they came up, and I thought, oh, God, what's this going to be like? And they said, oh, uh, Mr. Van Vaux, could we have a word with you? You see, And he said, yes, boys, what do you want? And they said, um, you're a friend of L. Ron Hubbard, aren't you? And he said, well, I'd like to think so, yes. And he said, um, well, you know that the government have cut funding to NASA for uh, putting other rockets into space, and we think it's very important. And we've we've done everything we can to pressurize them, and nothing's working. Do you think you could interest L. Ron Hubbard in it? He said, because if he got behind it, that rocket would be up there next week. And he said, I'll pass it on, boys. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um, it, w- it was very interesting how they viewed Elron um, um, Hubbard's intention level and what he could achieve. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. I, there's so many stories like that. You know, that people oh, that is. worked with him. You know, I hadn't heard that before. So that's that will definitely go now into my 
<laughs> yeah, into my repertoire of, you know, of Mr. Herbert's stories referencing this podcast interview. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, you mentioned, you mentioned it even a few times, his, uh, his wife, Lydia. Oh, yes. Lovely, lovely woman. She just turned, I think, 94 last year. She'll be 95 this coming year. She attends the Rise of Future events every year. Yes, because I saw a picture of you yeah. and her together, and I yeah. thought, gosh, it's, it's amazing that she's, she's kept going. truly an amazing person. Mm. And uh, I did a podcast interview with her and her daughter was there to help fill in some of the blanks as her memory sometimes gets sketchy. Yeah, of course. But she was um, uh, General Eisenhower's uh, personal translator at the end of World War II. Was she really? And so she traveled with him throughout Germany. And so she saw the various concentration camps and the, and the piles of bodies. And she, and she still would, would tear up. You yes. know, talking about it, remembering it. So it was just awful. They, they, they drove in one, and Eisenhower saw it, and he said, okay, that's, I, I've seen enough, and turned around. And then when he became president, he got her U.S. citizenship, and uh, that's how she made it in the United States. But mm -hmm. she spoke like half a dozen languages so she could translate whatever for him. Mm -hmm. And um, she's an amazing, lovely lady, and um, um, she also has great stories, obviously, about her husband. And she had talked about one time when she had lunch with Erwin Hubbard with, with Van. Van was what she called him in, um, in Hollywood. But um, now, obviously, as this is the Writers of Future podcast, one of the things, too, that I always like to cover and discuss with my guests is, you know, tips and suggestions on writing. Now, you've, you've transitioned your love of photography to writing about photography as well. Yes. Well, I, I don't so much write about photography as mostly um, because we're a soulless Nikon dealer. I write about um, equipment and mm -hmm. the history of, of, of Nikon. And, and also, I, um, as I think I told you earlier, um, th this building, which is from the late 1800s, used to house a, um, a, a photographer in the late 60s uh, called Michael Putland. And um, because we publish a quarterly magazine called Nikon Owner, um, I've, uh, uh, with an agreement with his, um, with his lovely widow, we, we carry um, one of Michael's pictures of these great artists in there, and I usually write it from the musical uh, point of view. Um, uh, what I find is the most important thing for me is to is the research, mm -hmm. and um, uh, but particularly um, uh, on Nikon because uh, there's a lot of people who are obsessive, and they will sure. they will be very quick to pick you up if you make if you make an error, which I don't mind at all because it's the only way you can the only way you can really learn. And um, but research is very very important. But I also want to tell it um, like a story. Um, and so um, you know, sometimes I will begin with something that has nothing to do with photography whatsoever, but then I'll weave it into the story to make it interesting. Um, uh, because I, uh, you know, one of the jobs I do is I I'm the editor of this um, of that magazine. So I've written written fairly extensively um, there. And in m most of the British photographic press, I've been approached often about um, service, you know, um, and how to look after people. But, um, yeah. Um, in fact, I think, if I've got it rightly, uh, and one of, the th one of the things for me, which was a... Which was a uh, something I live by is that uh, I think it was Writer's Digest. Mm -hmm. Mr. Hubbard wrote uh, an article called Search for Research. Yep. And um, I read it and, and um, I, I, would, I would just go back to it every time as my sort of, um, I've got this sort of basis of little things that I draw on and think, now um, I must remember that. I must, mm -hmm. I must put that. Uh, put that uh, thing in there. In fact, I, I, I'm just reminded of something that um, um, Mr. Van Vo told me. He, he went round to visit um, uh, Mr. Hubbard one time, and he had a typewriter, and I think he had a roll on it 
then. And uh, he said, and uh, he said, and he was sitting there looking at a wall, and he had a he had a little piece of string when his finger tied in a in a little knot. And uh, he told Van that what he did was he just looked at the story on the wall as if he was projecting it like a cinema, and just would write down. And uh, he said the paper would fall on the on the floor, and he said. What's that piece of string? He said, oh, this is for the little guy that everyone overlooks, and I just make sure I don't overlook him. <laughs> and he said, and he gathered up all the paper. He just left them, and he said, um, um, well, aren't you going to edit it? And he said, well, that's what editors are for. And he said, so he said, my secretary will pick it up in the morning and send it off, and that was it. The job was, the job was done, which... Uh, you know, Van said he found so extraordinary that someone who could write so well could do it at great speed. Because often there's this sort of criticism of, of writers that um, if a book takes them 15 years, for somehow that has some... That's literature. Uh, that is real literature and someone who writes fast. And, and, um, and Ron Hubbard pointed out um, that people like Jack London and P.G. Woodhouse, my own, one of my own favorite, favorite authors, wrote like whirlwinds and w wrote beautiful stuff. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. So, um, yeah, Jack London's when it got me involved and excited about reading Call of the Wild. Oh, yeah. Oh, my word. That's just, that was just. I was a young lad, and I was just like, ah, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. But also um, Mark Twain, Samuel Langhorne, Clemens mm -hmm. with, uh, with Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. I yes. love those as well. Just yes. Because they, don't you find that they just sort of came off the page and had their own mm -hmm. life form? Yeah. You know, I, I remember reading Huckleberry Finn. I could just see him on the, on the Mississippi. Mississippi River. Yes. yes. Absolutely. Exactly. Now, that's fascinating on that. And on... Um, because I've heard a version of that story, but getting it from you, that there's that the, the string, the pinky, mm. string and the pinky. I hadn't heard that before. So that's, but I've heard the thing about um, him writing on that roll of paper. Yeah. And there are a few other authors like um, Dean Wesley Smith, who was one of the first, he was the first person to be presented on the stage of Writers of the Future, mm. way back from volume one. And that's his philosophy on writing too. He said, you know, when you start editing a story, it starts off and it's this beautiful crystal. Mm. You know, it's, it's unique and it has all colors and shines and shadows and like that. And when you start polishing it and you start editing it, then it gets smoother and smoother. Then it looks like all the other rocks, you know. Mm. So he said, I just, he writes it, but he writes a lot too, you know. Does he? Yes. Yeah, he'll, he yeah. also does. What was his name? Uh, Dean Wesley Smith. De oh, yes. Of yes. Course, I know the name. And, um, so his is very similar to you know what Ron Hubbard did. He didn't. I don't think he writes quite as fast as as Ron Hubbard did, but he's very very fast. And yeah, that's the thing. The editor. That's the editor's job to do something. When we proofread the uh, stories from the Golden Age, which was a line of eighty books we published mm -hmm. uh, several years ago with one hundred fifty three of his Pulp Fiction stories, mm -hmm. we had the original manuscripts. And so I'm proofreading against that instead of the pulps, because mm -hmm. the editors fix it, so we try to get it back to originally him. We, we, sometimes we get to a point, and then the next page would be, wait, I already proofread that. What he did back then, if there was something he was typing, and then all of a sudden he didn't like where it was going, he'd back up a page, start again, he'd mm -hmm. type through the correction, and that's how Ron Hubbard, because that was back in the days you didn't have you know, computers, he doesn't have whiteout and all that stuff. No. He just back it up, start again, and, and flow the story. I did not know that. Yeah, so that was fascinating, seeing some of these stories when we proofread them for the stories from the Golden wow. Age. Yeah. yeah. And it was, you know, he was just, it was amazing how he just would be able to just, as fast as he, I think his composition speed was 92 words a minute. And um, he could he could type you know, up to 120, 125 words a minute. And he was the, uh, just the pack. He, he didn't do the QWERTY style of typing. Did he not? No. It was amazing. He, he was so fast, he just knew where the keys were. And he was, because he wasn't looking, he was just, like he said, he, he'd look off towards the wall, like what mm -hmm. like Van said, and he'd just be typing away. He'd, he'd type the story as it was, it was unfolding. Mm -hmm. You know, just 
what he was able to do. But he said also you had to throw away your first million words to develop your own style. But, first um, million. Yeah, that's what he said, to, to, yeah. so you could build your own style. Because he was very well read. And fiction, nonfiction, and that was at a time, too, which is kind of the, the birth of a lot of what is now, you know, the, the baby version of, of today's popular fiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the Pulp Fiction was fast, but it, it addressed an audience that wanted something escapist, you know, because of it was course. between World War One and World War Two, the Depression... Um, that had the you know the the influenza you know that mm. whole thing that wiped out mm. people weren't certain if they're going to have a job or not mm. so this was you'd had to grab people in the first paragraph or they're out of there but they wanted that that excitement to take yeah. them someplace where they hadn't been absolutely well it was the authenticity of of it uh, it um, you know it, writing in so many genres that mm -hmm. was the thing that just astonished me that you could go from you know, detective to cowboy to mystery to aviation to adventure to science fiction to fantasy. Um, Don't forget those westerns. Oh, and the western. Oh, the westerns. Yeah, and um, they they were authentic. Mm -hmm. They weren't somebody who hadn't lived those lives. Yeah. And I think that's that. Certainly, that was the thing that um, made him stand out. That he actually went off and did those things. Yeah. I mean, I guess being raised on a on a ranch and, you know, what he was riding when he was three or something? He was riding the horses, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he definitely had that, and it was funny. He made a, a comment on his Westerns. He said that was the one he had the roughest time with because most of, save Louis L'Amour, most of the people that were writing Westerns were Easterners who'd never mm. been to the West, you know, mm. so he had... So he had trouble because that's... He lived that life in Montana mm. and... Um, so he was able to write with realism, but people didn't, you know, he, he didn't connect as much as with the, uh, these, I said, New York bellhop that, you know, wrote from the balcony and just, you know. But it's interesting in that, but it's definitely his Westerns have survived very well right now. Yes. You know. So for someone, because you talked about research and this podcast is for, for writers, whether, mm. and some people, you know, when they've won the contest, they move into writing technical manuals. I have one person that was a first place, a grand prize winner, and who also had, I've had one who's been a winner of both the writer contest and the illustrator contest, who now write technical manuals for, I think, McDonald Douglas. So it, it is a, a writer writes, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you talk about research, and I know that there's these days a tendency to just, quickie it and just see what does um, you know Wikipedia have to say yeah. which is normally because there's you know the citations are sometimes less than <laughs> reputable or yes. valid yeah. what would be your your tips on like doing research what degree is like you know hands-on versus research in a in a library yeah, how does that work for you yeah. with what you do? Yes, uh, no, absolutely. It's a very good question. Well, what I do is um, because I, over the years, I've built out very sort of close contacts um, with Nikon Japan and with some of the engineers that worked on these cameras. So, um, although some of them have now passed away, um, and some of them. Uh, although uh, they are retired, they're still approachable and they love mm -hmm. to communicate. So if I wanted some research on a development of a particular uh, camera, because it was a huge change you know, um, after um, you know, World War II, uh, Japan surrendered. Mm -hmm. And uh, up to that time, Nikon had been making uh, a lot of their th factories had been changed to work for the war effort, their war effort. So they were. So Nikon is Japanese. Japanese, yeah. They were making things for, you know, transits, uh, sighting devices, and things like that. Um, they'd been an optical manufacturer, mm -hmm. they'd been formed in 1917. And um, because Japan was pretty devastated, Mm -hmm. And um, 
um, they they were told, well, you'll need to rebuild. You need um, overseas money, particularly the American dollar, to come in. You'll need something you can export. And so they came up with the idea of doing a camera. Um, they made one which was a 35 millimeter camera and another one uh, which was called a twin lens reflex which would have taken roll film mm -hmm. fortunately for me they chose the 35 mil otherwise i don't think you and i'd be having this conversation in this in this building and um so if i can talk to some of those people i know i'm getting as close to the truth as it's possible to um, get and also they will tell you stories sure and um, they'll tell you um stories and there's um and of course it involved photographers there's often great 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 stories because funnily enough uh, japan uh, nikon japan owes its success to an american photographer called david douglas duncan and uh, who really was like a poet with a camera and he'd been shooting the korean war and um he'd borrowed after seeing how good the quality was of their uh, their optics he'd borrowed a couple of their lenses to put onto his leica camera and life magazine wondered why he was using a plate camera because the quality was so good he said no i'm not i'm shooting with nikon lenses so suddenly everyone got interested in in this because the japanese had been widely known as copyists Mm -hmm. and this is what they were doing so he was responsible really for introducing um, a japanese product a high quality japanese product to the west and um, he'd written you know and a, a number of of his books and um, he went to live in the south of france and found out that his neighbor was pablo picasso <laughs> and um so he um he was a great fan of picasso's and he knew picasso liked ancient things and he had something um very ancient um and so he went and knocked on the door and picasso came to the door and he said you know i'm living down the road i'm a photographer my name's um uh, david douglas duncan and uh, um i'd like to give you this gift he said, oh, you're a photographer. Come and photograph me in the bath. <laughs> really eccentric. So he, he shot him, and these pictures are, have been widely seen. They became very, very close friends. And um, he told the story uh, once. Uh, and he said, uh, Picasso rang him and said, could you come round? I've done this painting, and it's going off to its new owner, and I want to wave it goodbye. So they had this beautiful picasso painting huge and he had the shadow of picasso waving and um he, he said when's the new owner getting here and he said well he's already here it's my gift to you and he gave him a picasso uh, and over the years he gave him others and he told this story he was looking at he loved dogs and um and david had a dog and he said what bowl's he eating? I said, oh, it's just a cereal bowl. He said, he doesn't have his own bowl. He said, no. So Picasso went away, went away and made this bowl, put the name of the dog on it and signed it Picasso. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so when I went to Japan the as a guest of the president, I was up in his office. It was this enormous... The president of Japan? President of Nikon Japan. Okay, good. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, the um so this um there was this enormous um color photograph of picasso standing outside his villa with this rainbow going across and it was signed there and he went to me look Grayson, nikon's greatest unmade unpaid pr man he would never accept a penny from us because he did it he said it was for the love of it he didn't do it for a commercial uh, a commercial uh, reason but that's how i get stories that can make what appears to be quite a dry subject to add some color to it because they oh i didn't know that mm -hmm. and um just before he died to my astonishment um he sent me a copy this is david Douglason of his new book and um in you know thanking me for my 
congratulating me on my 30 years in business and signed by him with a photograph of him signing and it's a sort of a treasured possession really because uh, uh, he was a photographer that I aspired to but also God could he write you know just mm -hmm. blessed really right. and um, that's the theme I find with all these photographers like the the great science fiction and f fantasy uh, writers, they just have this gift of language, don't they? It's a, like a, a musical language which communicates, really. Mm. Right. Mm. So on, um, I want to have it called Photography Writing with Light. Indeed, yes. So I'd like you to take a little bit of time and discuss that, because, I mean, his he also was a master photographer. He certainly was. And... Um, so a little bit of comment, if you could, please. We're redact eight minutes left on this thing, so I think enough time to be able to address this. Sure. Also, a writing with light and photography, because we have illustrators here, but some people would use a photograph to start with a picture. Yeah, and they build around that. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Well, photography is is light writing, isn't mm -hmm. it? And um, uh, you need you do need light um, in order to. Um, create a, create a picture, and as you you said, rightly mentioned, um, um, Ron Hubbard had um, great technical great technical skill, and I've seen a photograph of his camera room, and it is mind boggling. Mm -hmm. Everything from sub miniature sixteen millimeter Minoxes to big Sinar um, uh, monorail um, uh, cameras, and um, in fact, a photographer in some ways has a lot in common with a writer because he's telling a story with images. Well, um, you should be if he's an actual photographer. If he's an actual photographer where you go and it hits you, you know, it's, it's, um, and I, it, it's um, a communication sufficient to create an emotional impact, and that's what I find with certain photographers. Like Ansel Adams can do wonders with nature. Yeah. And some of us can go out there like, okay, there's a tree. Yeah. You know, what he's able to do to create with that exact right lighting balance. Yeah. yeah. And it's like people like uh, the American uh, photographer, um, uh, Jim Brandenburg, uh, who's just been given a Lifetime Achievement Award by National Geographic. I was here one night quite late, and I was with him and one of Sir David Attenborough's producers and um, I was talking to him about Jim and I said you know Jim's work is mind-boggling I said I don't know how he does it and he said look Ray if you and I will walk out in the street he said what time is it now it's about midnight we'll walk out in the street and he said we'll see a taxi going past maybe someone walking home Jim Brandenburg will walk out your door and a deer will turn the corner. <laughs> <laughs> he said, it just, it just happens like that. And um, uh, when I, and he's another one who's a, who's a great, in fact, he, um, he was the basis of, I don't know if you ever saw a film called The Bridges of Madison County, mm -hmm. Clint Eastwood, mm -hmm. where he played a National Geographic photographer. And it's based on... Um, Jim Brandenburg. Oh, really? Yes. And, um, and I've, I was speaking to a, a major movie star a number of years ago who came to visit us, and he saw it and he said, he said, do you know who that's based on? And uh, I said, I don't. He said, he said um, I think it's based on Jim Brandenburg. And I said, really? He said, yes, and he'd heard it from another film star. And um, so... I had contacted Jim, who was doing a shoot in, the, in France, and he said, well, I used to work for uh, the Waller family, who had a newspaper, and I got to know their son, Robert, and he came on a couple of things to me. He said, this is not the first time I've heard this story, uh, Gray, but that's I, I, what I think they, you know, they have in common, that um, if that picture goes if it tells the story that the photographer wants, then I think it's achieved its its end, really, mm -hmm. because it's a two way street, isn't it? Yeah. You, you, you know, you 
you bring something to the image. In, in fact, um, it's covered very, uh, very well by um, an article Mr. Hubbard wrote called Is It Art? And um, which has been published in a number of photographic right. magazines over the years. And um, that's also one of the guidelines I use. Um, uh, although I haven't done quite as much photography as, um, as um, I'd like to recently because I get buried in the business, but I probably do more writing these days. Mm. I get it. All right, so then on, um, as a, I guess as a wrap-up these last few minutes then, because I look in your, I'm in your, your office here and I see a whole stand of trophies, trophies, yeah. trophies, 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 and a bunch of books. I see Dan Sherman books there as well, we yeah. talked about earlier there. Mm. But um, so what are these trophies about? Well, um, several of the photographic magazines over here run what they call Good Service Awards. And um, so um, you would need to get 50 or 100 10 out of 10 votes for good service, and then you would be given an award. And we would generally win it every year, but so would, say, half a dozen of other, you know, very good dealers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said to the editor of one of the magazines, and I said, well, what's the most you get? And they said, well, you know, 50, 100. And I said, what do we get? And they go, you get thousands, Gray. And I said, don't you think there should be a separate ward for the most number of votes? So they inaugurated that one up there, which is the Platinum Award. And uh, from its inauguration, we've won it every year, which is that, uh, that one with the star on. Wow. And, um, and um, Retailer of the Year, um, four years in a row now, um, which is what it does is it give, gives people confidence that had maybe never dealt with you that maybe you're okay mm -hmm. because someone else has said so. And, um, you know, we've been fortunate enough to have um, looked after some, you know, um, um, some senior people who've said some nice things about us and you know they've they've um and their their name on it carries a, a good weight really they're worth 100 votes just by themselves alone. yes indeed <laughs> absolutely absolutely so um no this is this has been fascinating it's just i'm now thinking so many more questions we're talking about but we're out of time here mm -hmm. so um just as one last little any final tip they can give to either an aspiring photographer, writer, artist, you know, or yeah. even musicians, I'm sure there's musicians listening to this as well, that to help move them from wherever they are right now yeah. to the next level? Uh, persistence. Absolutely persistence. If, if it is your dream to become a photographer or a writer or an illustrator or, or whatever it is, and particularly in the field of arts, because what you do um, adds a great benefit to the society because, um, you know, we, we, we are beset with a lot of bad news. So these people do, uh, it is possible for them to sort of shine a light on this is beautiful and this is aesthetic and this is lovely and this is creative and you you you've just got to believe in yourself and you know if you're a writer just just continue to write um write write anything um and if you can't and if you can't sum it up just pretend that you're a writer that can and then do so because i did um and honestly if i can do it anybody can do it <laughs> <laughs> because you know um i left school uh, early and all of my intentions uh, were how to discontinue um my uh, my education because what i wanted to learn wasn't being taught mm -hmm. and um and and that's what i would go for and uh, and you know what uh, that you do so 
incredibly well and uh, great benefit. The writers and, and artists of the, uh, the future is um, is the is the best in the world. It's it's um, it's supreme. And fortieth anniversary, mm -hmm. bravo, 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 and bravo to everybody. You know, and go in for this competition because you won't look back. You'll enjoy um uh, being part of something uh, a very positive force in this world of creativity and art all right well that's amazing thank you very much Greg. you're welcome thank you for inviting me and thank you for listening subscribe to the writers of the feature podcast wherever you get your podcasts we've also been syndicated on the united public radio network where you can find these podcasts as well i also want to thank our uh, sponsor uh, carnation who's been with us now the last few years uh, supporting this podcast. Thank you very much. And if you've not tried any of their various milk products, I encourage you to do that because uh, they've been around for over 100 years and still very much going strong. Riders of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Gray. You're most welcome. <laughs>